but I, as a parent, I have to earn the right to know how to help. Like I can't go and say, son, you have to do one, two, three, four. Now, I think that I have, as a dad, earned the right to ask what I can do to help my kids. perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder... This podcast is for general education purposes, and we always suggest seeking appropriate treatment with licensed professionals accordingly. This week, I am super excited to introduce you to Peter Mutabazi, who you might know on Instagram or Twitter as Foster Dad Flipper, who is also on YouTube and Twitter. Yep. And I... I found you through social media, Peter. Like, I'm a foster mom, so of course I follow other foster people who probably shared your stuff, or maybe it was through a hashtag, but the work that you're doing is incredible, and I'm really excited to share more about you and the work that you're doing with the listeners today, but I want to share kind of my perspective, which I can't wait to hear the reality, because it's always you know, what something seems is entirely different than the reality on social media. And you make very difficult work of helping traumatized youth seem fun and effortless. I don't know how you do it because from firsthand experience, I know that it's not. And when I connected with you, you shared that you have a book coming out later this week. So I wanted to learn and share more about your story and also hear about your life philosophies. Because when I started to kind of dig a little deeper into you and your background, I think it makes a lot of sense what your motivations and your goals are and where you're coming from, which I know will resonate with our listeners. So can you share a little bit about yourself with us? Like how, what is your background and kind of where you are today? Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you for having me here. Yes. I saw your email and I was like, yes, absolutely. I have to talk to you. So I will have to warn your viewers that I speak seven languages and English is my fourth language. So I always try to do my best because I have to translate or sometimes find the appropriate words to say in English through my language. So I'll do my best, but truly a joy to be with you here. Well, my name is Peter Mutabazi, and I grew up in a small little village in Uganda where life was miserable in every shape form you could think of, you know? So I grew up in a place where no family or no mom would in some way encourage or inspire or give hope to their kids, you know? Think about this. I did not get a name until when I was two years old. Why? Because for every 100 children who were born during my time, 60 would die before the age of two. So most moms didn't name their kids because they weren't sure that they would make it. And I think for my mother, it wasn't like she didn't, she wasn't sure, but I think sometimes they, they know there's no really hope. So why should I give a name to a child that I will never have or be sure of their lives? So 
a two family she called me meaning a gift given by god that's what it means and you know that was really my background from the get-go then at the age of three four i knew we would never have you know we never had a different meal we would have beans or potatoes you know there was never a choice for anything else and sometimes or many times we we could only have beans and then the next day we have potatoes so we can you know in some way have extra food go a little longer. You know, at age of four, I was able to go fetch water, you know, three to four miles away for the family. You know, at age of five, I'll take care of my siblings while my mother is in the garden. At age of six, seven, I would help in the garden. So that was really life where there was no hope in so many ways. And it wasn't just my family. It was the entire village when all your kids have no hope. You know, school was $5 a semester, but my family could not afford five dollars to go to school so for me you know hopeless is all i knew and then at the age of four i began to realize that not only were poor but my dad was different from other men i had seen or my uncles or other families that i knew that my dad was abusive in every shape form you could think of you know and not just to me but to my mom as well so for me had you told me to dream or to be hopeful i really never wanted to see the next day because today was bad enough that I didn't want to repeat it somewhere. So dreaming wasn't part of what I lived or I wanted to be. It was just a life that I could only think about today or that day. And then, you know, of course, as you grow older, abuse gets worse. And, and being the oldest, I think I saw it when, in the worst way possible. You know, I had a dad who never said one kind word to me. All I had from my dad from day he woke up, Peter, you never mount anything. You are nobody. I wish I never have to feed you for a day. You know, those are things you had from your dad every day. And sometimes he meant it. Like he took the food away that you would spend days without food. So for me, life was just a place that I, a life that I just didn't want to have in some way. And so at age of 10, I thought, look, my dad is going to kill me. But why should I let him? You know, I would rather die in the hands of a stranger. So I had never been 20 miles away. I ran to the bus station at 3 in the morning, and I asked the lady, which bus goes the farthest? And the lady pointed, that, you know, that one goes to Kampala. Well, I didn't know where Kampala was, but I got on that bus, and I never, never, never wanted to come back. And as we drove, it took about 16 to 18 hours to get to Kampala. You know, you know you're 10 years old. You've never been 10 miles away, and now you're going 500 kilometers away. And I ended up in Kampala, of course, and, and I had no any other option, you know, or anything else to do. But I quickly realized that I was going to be a street kid because I saw other kids surviving. And quickly I joined the rank and learned how to steal, how to be helpful, how to earn the right to be on the streets. And that became my life, you know. At home, you know, I was lucky to have a day on the streets of Kampala. You're lucky to have an hour, you know, because most of our colleagues would die. In, in, I mean, just, just like that would eat in the garbage, and sometimes we'll eat something poisonous. And some of our friends would die, or we would sleep under the car. But the cars would move without checking if there was under. And sometimes, you know, some of our colleagues would die. So for me, life was more on an hourly basis. How do I make it through the, the hour? You know, but also on the streets, I was seen more like, like a garbage or like a, you know, a, a stray animal. I was never considered a human being. And I believed what people thought of me because I looked like one, I smelled like one, I ate in the garbage, I, I had no hope in some way. So in some way, I did not consider myself 
as a human, you know. That's what they said. I believed it, you know, or, or they said. And so a life of a street kid in Kampala was to steal while you were helping. So we always found a way to make it through without being noticed that we're stealing, but we didn't steal money because most people didn't make a dollar. But we stole food while we're helping. They used us anyway, so why should we not use them as well? And so for four years, that became my life. But also the unique thing on the streets of Kampala, for four years, no one ever asked me what my name was. You know, I was the garbage boy. I was less of a human, unworthy, knowing even by name, you know. Uh, and that was my life. So one day I see a gentleman coming in town. One, he was wearing glasses, khakis, and I noticed that is my target. Today I'm going to get a fine food. This the man that I'm going to steal from. So I approached him as he was buying food. I said, hey, you know, can I help you? But meanwhile, he just stopped and he said, hey, you know, stop. And he said, hey, what's your name? And that rattled me because for the first time in four years, no one had ever asked me my name. And he's a gentleman who I didn't know I was trying to steal from. He's you know, he's asking me what's my name. And I said, my name is Peter. And so I carried his things. And before I could take anything from him, he gave me freely. He gave me something to eat. And, and he left. But I didn't take notice of that. But also, for us as street kids, if someone was kind to us, that was a red flag. You know, kindness always came with abuse. So if someone was kind, we made sure that we had to stay away. So because he gave me food, that didn't make him a friend or someone that I could feel comfortable around. That that was a red flag. Run, run, run. The next week, I saw him. He called me by my name. And that really shook me that he remembered my name. You know, For all these years, no one really thought of me as a human to be called by name. So every time he came, he would always say, where's Peter, you know? And for me, I think I looked I looked forward to for that. Not the food he was giving me, but I was really recognized by my name. And that was just, I don't know, gave me a sense of like, wait a minute, I'm a human, you know? So he fed me for one year and a half. So he would come every week on Monday. And so one day he said, hey, Peter, if you have enough to go to school, would you have to go to school? And I was like, school? What do you mean school? I'm a street kid. I was told I would never mount anything. I'm nobody. Why would I go to school? School is for the people that matter. School is for the people who have hope. I don't have hope. I live on the streets. I've never taken a shower. I still, that's my life every day. School isn't for me. But those are the words I was convincing myself, you know? But he kept offering. I kept saying no. So one day he said, hey, I would like to take you to school. And there's lunch, dinner, and breakfast. So all I had was food. And I was like, there's no way it can be true. So I said, sure, I would love to go. But it was more of, I really want to see if there's food there. So once I got there, I got food, you know. And on the way, when he took me, I said, of all kids on the streets, there were more than 2,000 kids on the streets. Why me? why would you consider me? And he's like, I just want to be faithful. That's all he said, but I did not understand what he was saying. But anyway, I got to school. I had lunch. I waited for dinner. I waited for breakfast. So every day I was waiting for a meal. And I realized that for me to be able to truly enjoy this meal, I had to go to class. So then I started going to class. And then in class, I met teachers who began saying words of affirmation, you know, Peter, you, you're a good kid. If I didn't fight, that was my nature. Or if I got an, you know, always I got an F, but if I got a D, they would say, Peter, you have a potential. We're really proud of you. The more kind words I had, the more really I began to believe in myself. Like, wait a minute, if they believe I can have an D, 
I can have a say. So the more I had from them, the more it really encouraged me to do more. And then down the road, I figured I was good <laughs> in school. So I went to school in, in, in Uganda, I finished high school, and then I got a scholarship to go study at the university, and then I got a scholarship to go study in England, and that's how I came to United States. So that's a little, little, little story of really how a stranger changed my life by seeing the best in me where nobody saw that in me. Or even when I, I didn't see potential myself, but somehow he saw the best in me. And that's really what changed my life. And not just my life, but my entire family. I'm the oldest of five. They have all gone through university. They all have a job, not because they were smart in some way, but they saw an example in some way. If Peter can do it, we can do it too. But also I knew I could not take them away from the abuse from my dad but I knew I can give them the education I had been given. And so that became my mission. Like I want to educate my siblings so they can get out of that abuse. And that's really how he changed my entire family. And that's how I got here. Wow. That is beyond incredible. And I know that you know that, but I, I know also that as someone who is healing from my own trauma that you probably can never hear enough how amazing that is. And, and can you share a little bit about how you're giving back now? So I know your history before you were kind of a a full-time single dad and author was in traveling the world through World Vision, Compass International, Red Cross. I'm assuming that's why you speak seven languages. Incredible. I can't believe you apologized for English being your fourth language. Just amazing. And have been on BBC, the Today Show. Like, how did how did where you came from manifest into where you are today? Well, absolutely. So when I came to the United States, I think I, I struggled. I struggled, especially seeing how much food was thrown away. Remember, I came from a home, a place where Food was rare, like most families died or most kids died of diseases because they went home, you know, they went to bed hungry. So if you're hungry and you you have no nutrition, when you get malaria, I mean, it takes about a few hours and your life is gone. So I struggled seeing so much, you know, and I was like, man, wow, you know, I, I was brought through church. So in some way I was like, this, this church thing doesn't make sense at all. Like how can others be loved so much they have something to throw away? And others die for a lack of, and I'm like, hmm, this is this thing is just not not right. But through that, I realized too that I was blessed as well. Like to, you know, I had been given a home I didn't have. I'd been given a school that I never had. I'd been given hope that I never dreamed to have. And here I am in the United States, and I said, you know, I really want to pay it forward. Like someone changed my life, and I want to do the same. So I made sure that I only worked for charities that helped children. So that's why I worked for Compassion International, and I work for World Vision right now as a speaker, because I was also drawn to really wanting to use my glimpse of hope to give it to others who were in the same situation as I was as a little boy. So one day I was with this guy in Kenya and he's really excited talking about his family. And he's like, we just got a new baby and I am so thrilled to go back home. And so he showed me a picture. This guy was Caucasian. The little girl was black. And I'm like, wait a minute, how does this work? You, you look different. You know, this little girl is different. And he explained me about foster care. And I mean, as he was talking, I was like, that 
is my world because I understood them as myself. You know, I was unloved. I was unwanted. I survived every day, but literally, literally hour by hour. And I knew what rejection meant. So as he was listening, I was like, you know what? I think this is my calling, but I really want to really help kids in the false care. You know, I think I was afraid to be a dad first because I think I, I was afraid that I'll be my own dad because I didn't have a good dad. I was worried like, wait a minute, what if I turn out into my own father? But again, you know, my foster parents who took me in really helped me to and taught me of what it meant to be a dad. They showed me the example, but also they loved me. So they showed me the unconditional love in some way. Look, I was the roughest kid. I, I had no boundaries. I did not know any rules at all. But somehow they loved me through it all. They never saw the ugly part of my journey, but they saw the best even when I didn't see it. So for me hearing about folks, I was like, that's, that's where I'm going to go. You know, but I knew I could not make it because I had traveled to Ethiopia, China, and Uganda, and I saw people adopting kids. They were all white, and they were all married. I was not white, and I was not married. So I thought, there's no way I could ever do this. But while I'm in Ethiopia, I asked someone, hey, if I wanted to adapt, what can I do? They said, well, you have to be married, but also you have to be a female, and you have to be European or American. So in some way, I believe the lie, I thought, being black, there's no way they can allow me to be a false parent, you know? But I didn't give up. So for me, I said, at least if they don't allow me to foster, maybe they can allow me to mentor teenagers. So for me, I walked in the false care system. I said, hey, is there a way I can mentor teenagers? Because I relate with them. I understand. I know the struggles they're going through. Anyway, I could spend at least once a week with one of them. And the social worker looked at me and said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? And literally, this is what I said. I said, I don't think I qualify to be a foster parent. And she's like, why? I said, I'm single. Well, I did use the other word. I said, I'm single. And she said, no, you can be, you know. She said, there are many single female. We don't have men, but we would love you to consider being a foster parent. And I said, hey, you have to give me the papers to sign right now, proof that I can truly be a foster parent. She gave me the papers. I signed, literally, I started the next week for my MAP class so I can be licensed to be a foster dad. And, you know, after four, four, four five months, you know, I had really made my house kids-friendly. I had quit my job. I knew to be a foster parent, I needed to be a full-time dad in some way. And so I got my first child. And, I mean, oh, gosh, you know, it was the most... Fearful, but at the same time, the most blessing that I got. And the strange part, my first kid was the blondest kid you could imagine, you know? So when they brought him in, I said, I think you're at the wrong house, you know? Because in my understanding, I think I thought, you know, being the minority, I thought, you know, most kids who go in the false care, Hispanic, Caucasian, Native American, like I had no idea, you know, that when it comes to abuse and and neglect, is, it affects every child of every color, you know? And that's when I realized, like, oh... I'm to be a dad for any child, every child, without having to ask where they come from, but to really open my heart to say, I'm going to be a dad, just like that man did for me. He didn't ask me questions. He didn't ask me where I came from. He didn't ask me what I'd gone through. He just saw me and said, I see potential in you, and I'm going to do everything I can to see that potential fulfilled. And that was the approach I also approached. Being a foster parent, I said, I'm going to do the best I can to truly, truly, give you the best anyone can give you 
because I was given that. And I understood trauma as well for me, you know, that I could see trauma from a mile, that I understood where they came from, and I knew I can really speak in their lives. But also that I had little tools that had helped me to heal that I could use to truly be a dad to kids who are coming from the hard place. I would be lying if I said that I didn't tear up while you were speaking. I think one of the things that really hit home for me was when you were talking about the red flags of kindness and compassion, because abusers, children who have been abused, see that as a way for manipulators and abusers to to get in. And even at such a young age for yourself and the experiences that you had, you saw that person who was trying to help you, who ended up changing your life as someone, as a red flag. And I think as a foster parent, I have seen that myself so often, right? Like these children have been, some of the children in foster care have been through, for example, you know, my first foster child had been through 14 houses and in some of those houses been abused worse than he was in his own home. And so, you know, it was hard for, him to have trust. So that really resonated with me. And I, I definitely (laughs) teared up when you went to a social worker and found out you could be a foster parent. And we're so excited and enthusiastic for that. And the, the gift that you're able to give back because walls have been broken down and all people of all walks of life can offer huge benefit to so many children in need in this country. And I'm, I'm grateful that those balls remain down for single dads, for LGBTQ families, for, you know, all ethnicities. And clearly the work that you're doing shows how very powerful that is. So I want to introduce our listeners to the way that you open your book, which I think will make sense now that you've shared your story, but you say to every vulnerable human being who may not think there is hope, you are seen, you are heard, you are loved. And I think what is interesting about that connection for me with the passion that you have for the vulnerable is this, this idea of integrating that into your everyday, very busy life today. I think the the hard part for me as a foster parent is those ebbs and flows of of when the the red flags, when the trauma spikes, when the when the pushback comes, which is emotion emotionally natural, right? It's it's how we protect ourselves. It can sometimes be really difficult in regular life, both for the child and for, you know, the other people in your home, life, therapist, school, doctors, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. Like, how do you integrate that into your busy life? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a good question, you know, for sure. You know, I think for me is that, I mean, I was, I was not the most difficult, but I, I did not understand what normalcy was. Like I didn't, I never seen what normal is. Like I had never seen a dad talk to his kids. I had never seen a family sitting on a table. I had never seen kind words from a dad. Like I never, never had one kind dad from my dad. So for me, I everything was new to me and it was coming with red flags, red flags, run, Peter, run. You know, the first time they invited me to their home, I. 
I couldn't sit on the table because I was afraid that someone is gonna is gonna hurt somebody. So I had to be at the exit door because that's why I felt safe. Like if anything happens, I at least I can walk out, run, you know. But they had a, a t- they had a chair for me, and they said, "Hey, Peter, you know this is your seat, and you can you can you can serve yourself." And I could not believe I could not believe they could be a, something like that. Like for me, I thought it was a show. I thought they're just like they're they're duking me to do something bad later. So I I could not I could not understand the way uh, they lived their lives to me, which was normal for them, you know. But that they would allow me to sit on the table. So even sitting on the table, they were being kind. But for me, I was I was afraid that someone's gonna pour that food on my head, you know. But how they graciously understood that and they. They didn't have food, but sit outside because that's why he felt safe. And for me, I, I didn't, I didn't, I never seen anything, you know, a dad with, you know, with his kids laughing, eating dinner, like it was foreign to me. So for me, that was a run, you know. And I think as first parents, you know, we get to see things that are not normal. Like, you know, we grow up from a family where things are normal. And you have a kid, and he's like, "What's going on?" You know, like. What we have to to truly, what I'm trying to say is like, we the people have to earn the right to to let us believe what they're giving us. So in that case, I, I'm, so I give an example of me allowing me to sit outside because I I didn't I didn't know how to eat my food, you know, because I knew something bad was about to happen, but they didn't push it. They let me sit outside in some way. And I think for us who have homes, we get to include, you know, we get to invite our kids and we think, hey, they'll sleep in the bed. I'm going to buy them a dress. They should love it. I cooked meal. They're going to really enjoy my spaghetti that I, and meatball I just made. But well, for that child, it really is the different, you know, it's. It's what are they going to do to me? What are they going to ask me after they feed that meal? Well, I've never seen someone sit and make a meal before. Wait, did they make enough for everyone? Like, in our head, there's so much going on that when you go to what's normal, we just want to run away because we it's not something we're used to. And I think as sports parents, it's a struggle, you know, because we are dealing with kids where what's normal for us, it's abnormal for them, you know. So for me, as my kids, like, I think it's easy for me to to know because I was one of them, you know. Well, when 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 I give them food, and they, they, they want more and more to know, hey, it's not like he just wants more, but he's afraid that that's the end of the meal. You know, like tomorrow there won't be any meal, you know, because they can't keep leftovers because tomorrow it won't be there. So to me... It's a little bit easy for me to see the, those red flags. I know how to navigate, you know, rather than see them as strange, but see them as, okay, now I know how to really help him or help her the next time. I'll give you an example. You know, I've got some kids where they're afraid there won't be enough food, so they want to eat as much as they can, literally, like, you have to stop eating. You know, now I learned, okay, for me to assure them, I have to, I have to write, names on their food and put in the fridge because it's not about labeling the food but it's the idea that my name is on that dish my name is on that pint of milk so there's a hope that i could have something so rather than go to bed not expecting something tomorrow by having their name on it that really helps them to say if my name is there, maybe there's something there. And the more they get to see that, the more they get to feel comfortable. And it, it takes a hundred times to do so, to say, okay, 
I don't have to worry about the milk. The milk will be there tomorrow when I wake up. So for me, that has really been a joy of not navigating the trauma or the experience they've gone through, but understanding it because I was one of them. Like, is it relate? Is it to go back, flashback and say, what would I have thought? You know, I'll give you an example. My 18-year-old, you know, I wanted to surprise him and uh, take him driving, you know? So I said, hey, someone is picking you up at school and they're going to take you driving. And right enough, he just said, please, please do not bring them here. Please, I don't want to go. Please do not, you know? And he was adamant and said, I do not want to. So I said, okay, but can I come and pick you up from school? So I went to school and I sat with him and I said, hey, you're 18, you're about to really go in the world. And in the United States, as you know, having a car is really important to go to work, you know? And I said, why are you, Why did you resist that? Why was, you know, why is it a problem? And he was quickly to tell me, well, I didn't think I deserved that, you know? I thought that's for people who uh, have mom and dad, are people who matter. Like, I didn't know. So for me, rejecting wasn't because I didn't want to drive, but I was afraid that it was too good to be true, you know? But quickly, I understood that as soon as I had what he said, I knew, okay, sabotage. Why? Because he does not believe he's worthy going to driving school, you know? So I took him, you know, I went by myself to school and, you know, in some way, reason with him, but really helped him out like, hey, we love you. We want you to have this because you are special, because you matter, and we care for you. And he went for driving. And after, he's like, I am the best driver ever. Well, you just went for the first time. But that's all it took, you know? But I could have seen his ungrateful, what's wrong with this kid, you know? But I knew where he was coming, that I went and met him where he was at. I said, I feel you, you know? You feel like it's not worth for you, but it is worth for you, you know? So for me, I think that has really been helpful, understanding trauma, but also... That I, as a parent, I have to earn the right to know how to help. Like, I can't go and say, son, you have to do one, two, three, four. Now, I think that I have, as a dad, earned the right to ask what I can do to help my kids. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. And I'm going to give you some parenting tips here, too because they're doing a never offered before deal. And I strongly recommend trying it if you haven't yet. It is the only way, honestly, that I am able to keep up with these ravenous teenagers. Since Matt has been working more this summer, we implemented each kid cooks once a week. And even if they need our help, it's huge to not have to worry about meal planning and setting them up for success to be empowered when they'll live on their own in just a few years. It's also huge that they can make what they want by simply going to the freezer versus interruption of having to run to the store. The convenience of having ButcherBox meats waiting for us has been a game changer. Cole, our oldest, who wants to be a chef, often grills or makes stir fry to use up leftover vegetables, which is great. Finn likes to do burger night, and we love ButcherBox's ground beef. Kiddo likes to make breakfast for dinner, which is fun. They make the best pancakes, and we usually have bacon or sausage as a side. And then Wesley is only 12, so he needs the most help, but even he loves choosing a meal from the freezer. He can grab chicken, put it on a roasting pan, and make a bag salad while it roasts in the oven. I've been able to adjust my custom box to ensure that each kid can find what they want to make. 
And the best part, and why ButcherBox is specifically my meat delivery of choice, is their humane and sustainably raised meat. The beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones, and it ships for free, frozen right to your door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. They're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. I love supporting B Corps, which they are. So you can take chicken breasts off your grocery list because ButcherBox is offering you, our listeners, an incredible deal that they have never offered before. Free chicken for a year. I'm just going to say that again <laughs> because it's such a good deal. Um, get two pounds of free range organic chicken breasts for free in every order when you sign up at butcherbox.com slash whole view. You can claim this deal at butcherbox.com slash whole view. This podcast is sponsored by Felix Gray, who makes effective research-backed blue light glasses. Y'all always want to know where I get mine, and now you can get your own at felixgrayglasses.com slash wholeview. Yes, I wear glasses daily, and no, I do not have a prescription, but I strongly believe that wearing these glasses has helped my eye health, preventing the need for any prescriptions at the age of 41. If you're listening to this podcast, you are exposed to blue light. We actually did a deep dive in episode 302 from season two, where there is a ton of science about how disruptive and harmful the light emitted from electronic devices are for our eyes and overall health. So if you're spending time staring at your phone, tablet, computer, TV, or other devices, you may find yourself having some of the common symptoms like headaches, blurry vision, dry, tired eyes, and trouble sleeping. And exposure to blue light at night can lower the production of melatonin, the hormone that regulates your sleep, which is huge for our health. You don't want that. Late night TV and phone scrolling needs blue light glasses, and Felix Gray filters up to 15 times more of the most impactful blue light than other clear blue light lenses. Nine out of 10 customers experience relief from eye strain, headaches, and or blurry vision. I am definitely one of them. You can protect yourself and make an amazing fashion statement with lenses that deflect blue light. I personally own three pairs and rotate them out daily. To me, glasses are like jewelry. They're an expression of my style and while also supporting my well-being. I love how classic the Jemisons and Whiskey Tortoise are and the librarian effect of Hopper in Manhattan Fade. I've had them since 2019 and they're still working great. My newer ones are Volta in clear panorama color for a subtle effect that goes with everything, even if I have on bold eye makeup. To get the best blue light glasses on the market, use my URL at felixgrayglasses.com slash whole view. You can get non-prescription or prescription and check them out now at felixgrayglasses.com slash whole view. They have free shipping, free returns, free exchanges at felixgrayglasses.com slash whole view. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed. 
which is where I personally recommend posting your resume as well as posting job opportunities if you are in search of quality candidates. I personally got my big career break back in ye olden days. I think the uh, new generation is calling it the late 1900s. Oh, facepalm. Through Indeed. I wish they had all of the time-saving tools that they have now back then, like virtual interview options to save you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. And after using Indeed's virtual interviews, most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to indeeddata.us. Finding great talent doesn't have to be a second job. You can hire faster and better with Indeed. Indeed is the number one source of hires in the U.S., according to Talent Nest. And 73% of U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on Indeed each month, according to Comscore. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. In the minute that I've been talking to you, 16 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed Data Worldwide. So start hiring now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash wholeview. Offer is good for a limited time. So claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash wholeview. Indeed.com slash wholeview. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think that's a wonderful example of how all parents or not just parents, but, you know, caretakers of any kind can ask. I know for me, that has been a huge lesson that I've learned over the last couple of years is it was in certainly our culture and the way my parents parented that when things weren't going the way that they wanted, it was an assertion of dominance. And I did not have abuse as you've experienced but I did have, you know, parents who yelled or parents who asserted dominance or of some sort. And I think in our culture, that's very normal. That's how, you know, most people parent, right? Like, because I told you so, you must do this now. And yes, the person is going to pick you up and you are going to drive or there's going to be consequences and you're going to be punished. And I, I did this thing called collaborative problem solving training and you're already parenting that way. It was huge. It was eye-opening for me to, instead of solving a problem by asserting dominance, to instead sit down the way that you did and say, hey, I notice this thing that seems abnormal. You know, you don't say it's abnormal, but hey, I noticed you have a difficult time putting your shoes on in the morning. What's up with that? And, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not about the shoes in the morning. It's about you know, something else and figuring out how to support that individual and whatever it is they're going through has just been a game changer in my life, not just as a parent, but I think, you know, as a friend, as a leader, as a spouse, you know, and having compassion for what someone is resistant to is not really the thing that they're resistant to yeah. in most cases, you know? <laughs> yes, it, it, it's something else. But the other part is also that the, they, 
they're telling us something, but they're telling us in a different way, you know? But I believe in being hard. I was never given opportunity to speak. I come from a culture where men talk, women second, and children third. Like, you have no right to talk. And for me, I had to really relearn the other way, that every child has a voice and they ought to be heard. But sometimes what I expect them to talk to me is different. So I'll give you an example. Sometimes my kids, they yell, they curse. I mean, when that flip goes off, I am like, oh, okay. But to learn to say, I can hear the mean words coming, but they're really not about me. Like, I, I need to put myself aside and then this child really kind of bent out, you know, and, and that has helped me to not take things personally because I know there's this, this something he's trying to communicate with me, but he's communicating in a different way that I, a normal human being would not, you know. They haven't seen mom for a month. Yes, they're angry. And sometimes the frustration, I'm the only person there, so I'm going to get the beating, well, punch bag in some way. But to, to, to know sometimes, like, hey, you know, it's not me, but they're really trying to really share what they're feeling inside, their frustration. And for me to say, rather than say, how dare you, to say, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, and I, I understand, you know, and validate what they're feeling. I think that really helps, you know. And as false parents who are dealing with kids and trauma, it's not something I get to do once a week. You know, it's something I get to do literally on an hourly basis, you know, that I have five kids and they have different traumas has affected differently that I have to remember, you know, as a dad, that it's not about you. It's about him. So just listen a little and see what's going on and see how you can help. And that's really helped me too, to be a dad and in, in, a, in a good mood and, and have a good spirit in some way without taking things personally all the time. You know, the rejection and gratefulness that sometimes we think they are, but they're not. You know, sometimes they just don't know how to say thank you or they're overwhelming. They don't know how to say, wow, that's really cool. But the thing you give them, just remind them of the mom or the dad they miss. So instead of saying, I love this, they're like, mom, where are you? Dad, how dare you forget me? You know, so I have learned along the way to what I see to really not take it personal, but to really jump in and say, you know, how can I be of help? Agreed. And you have two adopted teens and then several, like, school-age children that you're still fostering. Is that correct? Yes. And I got one about six days ago, a three-year-old. Okay. Oh, my goodness. That's that's such a, 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 a wide breadth of different parenting skills. I am super impressed. Stacey, that three-year-old is more like a tornado going through the house. <laughs> yes, I know. When we filled out our paperwork, I, I specifically was like, no, no babies or toddlers. Like I, I, I already raised three. I don't, I'm done with that. <laughs> but it's, it's its own magic. Honestly, three, three to four is, it's like this super magical age. It, it depends, obviously, with developmental growth. A lot of foster children are delayed in that. But I was actually a daycare school teacher when I was in college. There was a on-campus daycare, for lack of a better word, that the professors and students could use, and. I was in the classroom for three-year-olds, which was really like three to four-year-olds, and I fell in love with that age. Like, they just, they're sponges. They love learning, and you can, like, see the wheels turning in their head, and they're starting to develop, like, their own autonomy and personality and 
I really love that, that age, but as an aunt at this point, right? Like as a grandma, maybe as an aunt, <laughs> not, not again as a mom. So I think the other really incredible thing about the work that you do, not just, you know, that you have the ability to, to help these children and, and overcome your own challenges is that you are helping to break the bias and the systemic racism that exists in foster care. I think you spoke to that a little bit, and I'll put some references in the show notes for statistics and more information. But it is well known that there is a disproportionality of race equity in child welfare. So families of color are disproportionately represented in foster care, more likely to experience multiple placements, more likely to experience group care, ultimately leading to worse outcomes and less likely to establish permanent placement and ultimately, you know, poor social experience, behavioral, educational outcomes. And of course, as a result of those circumstances, you know, their their life is less fulfilling. They're they're not able to have an outcome and and overcome becomes that much more difficult as you've described your own personal experience. And I think having, for example, blonde children in your home, I can only imagine some of the vitriol that comes your way. I know for, you know, my experience, for example, when I was going through training, I definitely had in my head that I was going to you know, foster children of color. Like I just, I assumed. But meanwhile, the statistics show that there's actually, even though, you know, families of color are investigated more often, that it's actually the reverse of what comes into care and neglect and addiction and mental health issues and that kind of stuff. And I certainly did not have that knowledge before, you know, going through training and and doing more research and stuff like that. I'm wondering, you know, being someone who's willing to bring in a rainbow of vulnerable children into your own home, can you share more about that experience, both, you know, the positives and the negatives I'm sure that you've experienced as being someone so publicly facing for this? Yes, absolutely. You know, (laughs) yes, like you, I thought, well, you know, the most marginalized, uh, you know, as I said, my first kid is going to be Hispanic or Native American or black. But, but I lived in Oklahoma. There's, in, there's hardly any black people anyway. So, you know, I had no idea when the blondest kid showed up. I was like, oh, OK. But then, like you, I go to London. Actually, yes, the majority are, you know, even in my county right now, the majority of kids in post care are Caucasian kids. But also, you know, I think for me, once once I started the the, the 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 licensing, you know, I realized that everyone in the class was like, "What is he doing here?" You know, but it wasn't the question of why is this black man here. It was more of what's the man doing here. I think we've created a society where we say men go work and then the moms take care of babies and make sure they're okay. And I, I and I and I think for me that really robbed me the wrong way because I come from the, the culture where men are the head of the family and they do whatever they want and no one should question them. And then moms, you know, second class, and I hated that to see my dad treat my mom that way. So for me, once I became, you know, in the, you know, once I really learned more about foster and, and I wanted to be one, I was like, I'm going to truly share the narrative that it's not true that men we have the right, men we have the potential, men we can take care of babies as much as our moms can, and it's both all our responsibility, not just one, all 
both of us truly ought to truly take care of our babies. And especially kids in the foster care, I'll be honest, most of them don't have a dad, you know? And, and I think for me being a dad, that was a little easy. You know, I've had 27 kids. I've never, won, I've never had one say, I wish we had a mom. No, they're always so happy to have a dad. So from the get-go, I really wanted to inspire men. Like, hey, man, it is our job to truly step up and take care of our babies. But the other side, I wanted also to debunk stereotype. You know, I've heard that people say, you know, black men are not good dads. And I wanted to show that I am a good dad, you know, and I'm a good dad to kids who don't even look like me, you know. So I wanted to really show, uh, especially to the media, the social media world, that dads, we, we can do good, and there are black dads that are really doing really well. The other part I really wanted to debunk was I come from a culture, of course, from a colonialism where, you know, white people do good and black will receive. That's the, 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 you know, Madonna comes and, you know, adopts kids, you know, Angelina Jolie, that's what they do. They take, you know, and I believe in so. So for me, I was like, wait a minute, I got to change the narrative. You know, for me to embrace every child that comes, that they all need our love. You know, they all, no child comes in the force care for a holiday. You know, no child chooses to be there. They all come for the wrong reasons. And it's our job to truly make sure that we protect each one of us. So there's some stereotype that I wanted to in some way kind of show to the media that that's not true, you know as I believe that as a black person, I wasn't able to, to force her. Well, that was a lie, I believe, because there was never any representation I saw. I never saw, you know, any African-American who were adapting in Africa. I never saw them in any, any writings. No. So I believe we are not allowed to. And so for me, I came in wanting to say, how can I truly change the narrative? You know, the other part, why you, I think you asked me at the beginning, like, man, you know, uh, you make it so fun to be a false friends, you know, about what you do and what you show. Exactly. That's really what I wanted to show. The apples kids are as normal as any kid. They're as fun as any kid. And I'm going to do everything I can not to only highlight the negative, but really more maybe the positive because we're quick to talk about the negative, but we never really talk about the positive. But two, as a foster parent, I feel like they have, helped me more than I have helped them. So there's an equal benefit. I think sometimes, you know, as Americans, you know, I'm doing them a favor, I'm helping them. But I, in some way, I feel like they are helping me to, to be a better human being, to understand what unconditional love. I can say it all day, all night. But until you have a kid in your face, in your home, who don't look like you, who act different, and you're able to love on them, to say, man, I am learning as much as... I am teaching them something that it's an equal benefit. The other part was, I think traditionally we've been told, you get married and then you have kids. And I'm like, wait a minute, but can you be a dad and a mom while you're waiting? You know, yes, I would love to be married. Don't get me wrong. But while I'm waiting, I want to help someone. And I think there are people out there that have potential to truly, truly be the best moms, the best dads for our kids. But are kind of waiting for the traditional way to go. And I'm saying, no, you know. I think we can get married, but while we have the space and the time, that we can truly jump in and help as much as we can. You know, I always wanted to be a dad. I always wanted to be a dad, you know? And the moment my kids came, the crazy part, they've always called, called me dad. I was like, man, I could have waited until who knows at seven to get married. But here, the one dream I really wanted was right in front of me, and all I needed to do was to 
to say, I'm willing to love on them. I'm willing to open my home. I'm willing to do something small to be there for this child that needs us more. And so for me, my whole journey was to really not debunk the stereotype, but to change the narrative on how sometimes we do things. And that's why I love to show off my kids because they are funny and hilarious, trust me, you know? Yes, there's trauma, but out of 24 hours, it's probably 30 minutes that that shows up. The other, the other 20, you know, 23 and a half, I just know kids that love each other, that love family, that just want to be loved. And I can say to your viewers who are listening that you have an opportunity to truly be a mom if you always wanted to be and be a dad if you always wanted to be. There's no limits that we will train you, we will help you. Trust me, of all people, I am the, I, the least person you would have expected to be a dad. But somehow through my own challenges of life that I've used it for good. I've used my past experience as a foundation to help me and help others as well. I love that. And I I also think, you know, the other part about being a foster parent is knowing that if the children do not have terminated parental rights, then we are for lack of a better word, you know, a caretaker until we can, what's called kind of bridging that gap. And I think, you know, some of the worst outcomes are that children of color who are in foster care are less likely to be reunited with their birth families because there is that stigma or bias within the system itself of having those challenges and the hurdles and the red tape be more difficult, less understanding and less compassionate for those families. I provided respite care for two sibling black boys whose dad was involved and trying his best to meet the state's requirements. Even when they were with us during those two respites, they had multiple interactions with dad, right? Like scheduled, whether it was virtual or in person. And he showed up every time and they looked forward to connecting with him and, you know, wanted to be back home with him. And he couldn't achieve the goals that the state set by the court's arbitrary assigned date. And so the state terminated his parental rights. And I didn't find that out until I saw them at a recent picnic and was talking to some and heard that since, since that time that we'd had respite with them, they'd been in multiple different placements. And it was, it was breaking my heart to hear that a parent who was trying had that disconnect and and the ripple effects of you know what that means for for that family for those siblings who might not get to stay together the statistics are not great there and the dad to not be together again and I know you said you had 27 placements and you have five in your home now I can do the math I'm assuming that some of those have you know gone back to their families how do you approach bridging the gap and reunifying, right? When the when the goal is still reunification, when term, when parental rights haven't been terminated, how do you, you know, help children make that connection and, and bridge that gap? You know, so for me, you know, <laughs> I mean, having an abusive dad, so you can imagine coming to, to be a foster dad, that was a hard, I had to really overcome. At first I was like, I'm, these, 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 these parents are evil in my head, you know? But 
my second child, so he had asthma, so he got sick at three in the morning. And I knew I could not reach out to a social worker. I knew the only person I can reach is a mom. So I called the mom. I was like, hey, your little one is wheezing. What should I do? You know, and she said, do one, two, three, four. And I followed the instructions she told me. You know, and the kid, you know, felt better. And the following morning, she called me. She said, Peter, thank you for letting me be a mom for a minute. You know, and I, 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 I don't know. I, I felt like the switch just went off. Like, for the first time, I was like, she is my ally. You know, like, there's no way I could have taken a care of this kid had that mom really stepped in when I needed her, you know. And from there, my attitude changed, like, I'm going to be the best ally I can to truly be there for the kid. And, you know, and, and as you said, you know, the only problem she had was she did not have transportation. So she couldn't make most of the visits, you know. And I figured that out. Like, can I come to you so you can be able to see your kids every time you have visits? So you don't have to struggle because, you know, no driver's license, no car. How do you expect, you know, a mom to drive an hour and a half? to come and see the kids, you know? And I made my effort to always go to them, you know? And so she, you know, she made sure that her record had, a, you know, that she'd making all the efforts she could. And she got her kids back. But I had to understand to know that, hey, she has needs. And if I can step in to come alongside, that I know she will achieve where she needs to be so she can have her kids. So rather than see her as my enemy or this person who doesn't care about her kids, I really had to understand where she's coming from to be able to come alongside. And it's been the best thing in the world, you know? When you tag along with parents, when you reach out, and of course, you know, first time, you know, they're looking at me like I'm the, the worst evil human being taking their kids, you know, but along the way, I have earned the right, not the right, but a way to say, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you you see your kids, you know, and rally. So some of them, like, have drug problems to make sure that I am the advocate to say, hey, did you go for your counselor? Did you, you know, that I'm coming alongside. And I realize as a foster dad, I have my village. You know, when I'm struggling, I know which mom to call. When my boys are being nasty, I know which dad to call. Like, I have people to help me be the best dad I can. But these moms and dads don't have. And I want it to be that that I have that my village for and to really help them. And when they see they have a parent who's really fighting to to see them do better and is is rallying with them, I can tell you it's day and night that things change because they have an ally who's have their kids but also sees them as human beings. And for me, it also goes back to being a, a street kid. I would hear people say, what a mother would let their kids be here. But in my head, I'm like, well, you don't know what my mom went through. The same abuse I got every night. If it wasn't me, it was her. So how dare you say she didn't love me? Well, she loved me the best she could, but she was getting the same abuse as I was, that there's no way she could protect me. The most time, she got abused because she was trying to protect us. You know, if she fed us before my dad came, she got the beating because she somehow gave away the food that she was not supposed to. So, yes, in her way of what she was trying to do, yes, she got the worst of all. So for me to approach other fellow moms, bio moms, and have the, the, that same judgment, I think it's wrong. But I think understanding where they come from, that really helps us to bridge the gap. But also, too, for me to have a healthy child, like to be honest, for me to have a healthy child in my home, when a mom is involved, 
life is day and night. You know, that biological connection is important for them. Like, I, I co-parent with them. They're supposed to have 15 minutes of a call. I think sometimes I call every day. Why? Because I feel they have the right to really help me. But also, they're human, amazing human beings that are looking for someone to tag along with them and help them so they can have their kids back. And, and I have extended family. Why? Because I have pursued, bridged the gap, and their kids. And it's funny, all my African-American kids have been reunified with parents, all of them, you know, because they, they needed someone to come alongside, understand, and advocate for them. And I think that's what the best we can do for kids in care, you know, to truly rally around their moms and dads and, and fit in the gap where they are not. You know, but also to know it's the best thing I could ever do for that child to get them reunified with their parents is the best gift for that child. I literally was sobbing when you were talking about thinking of the parents as humans and how powerful that is, not just for the parent, but also for the child to see that co-parenting and, you know, to not assume the worst is a phrase that I use a lot, right? Like, we can't possibly know the circumstances that so many of these parents have been through. And I don't know your father. And, and, you know, what I always say to the kids is I'm like, this is not an excuse for the behavior, but to understand, I'm sure your father's father put trauma on him, right? Like this generational cycle of trauma and abuse can stop if someone is willing to step in and to help. And someone did that for you. And we're trying to do it for others. And when we're able to kind of bridge that gap and, you know, collaborate in some sort of way, the power that it has for the children and the whole family unit. And that just becomes bigger and bigger, right? Like now, even if the children leave your home, you're still a family member of theirs. You know, the 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 first boy that we have that is no longer with us is still someone that we speak to regularly and check in on. And, you know, I want to know about his life updates. I want to be a part of his life forever. And I think it's just really powerful. So thank you for, for sharing that and everything today. I like to always leave our listeners with something positive before we go. And I, I like that we ended it on, on that and reconnection and reunification is such a powerful, positive thing. I'm wondering for our listeners, if you have actionable suggestions that they can take to be of service or to also help vulnerable children. I know step one is to get your book, Now I Am Known, and be inspired to their their own path in that way. Do you have other ideas on what our listeners can take away to implement in their own lives? Yes, absolutely. So he's he's the best example I can say. So when I became a foster parent in the you know the in three months later, I think I wanted to quit. I was like, there's no way I can do this, you know. But along the way, I had people that came alongside and really helped me. They stepped in, you know. You know, I had single parents, so, sorry, single moms who would chip in when I needed help. I had single people who were not married that would show up with milk at midnight. What I'm trying to say is, like, it took a village to truly help me not give out at my three-month mark, you know, that now I have been for five years, you know, with 27 kids, 
It's not like I was able to do it, but I was able to do it because people came alongside where I felt lonely. They stepped in the gap where I couldn't show up as a single dad. Sometimes, you know, when I have a kid, I can't go anywhere. But someone will bring a pint of milk or a tray of eggs. So what I'm trying to say is like we can all do a little thing. We are not all called to be parents, for sure, to be foster parents, but we can do what we can do. And I'm an African, and I truly believe it takes a village. You know, if you have a foster mom, you know, please don't call. If, if you call and we don't answer, we are overwhelmed and we know what to do. But just show up. Don't ask me what I mean, but just go to the grocery store say, I'm at the grocery store. I'm in the milk section. How many do you want? You know, bring them milk, you know, coffee. Sometimes all I need is a coffee, an adult to talk to me. It's not the food I'm looking for. It's not the counseling I'm looking for, but just someone to sit with me and just give me a cup of coffee. You know, our kids go through therapy on Thursday and sports. So for me, Thursday are the hardest time for me as a dad. But we have someone who drops a pizza every Thursday. One pizza. It's a half pepperoni and half and I have cheese for my kids because that's what they eat. And they're able to help me not worry about the meal on Thursday. So you see like how each one can take part in truly helping us be the best parents. Also, here's the other thing. As parents, we it's not like we have forgotten, but I think people always think about the kids, but they forget who's taking care of the kids. School is starting. I can take only five backpacks, but I have 20 people that want to give me backpacks. But what if we say, I'm going to give you a gift card to go shop at your favorite grocery store? What if I can pay for someone to mow your yard just twice in the next month? Small things that can truly help me do the best I can to enable me to be a parent because you stepped in and you became my village. So, you know, find a charity that is helping kids and find a way. Is Do they take clothes so you can drop the clothes you don't need more? Do they take gift cards so you can be part of that? You know, that we can all do one little thing. As I said, not all of us can be forced parents. It's a calling. It's hard. Trust me. But we can all do something small in where you are gifted. I'll give you an example. My, I have teenagers. And some people are like, how do I help teenagers? But I have single men that love to play video games. And they take my kids once a week. Just to play video games, one, they are role models, positive role models towards them, but also they're showing kindness and love towards them. And normalcy and what life is and dreams are because you bring them and really spending time with them. On their birthdays, do you know who they invite? The role models, because that's who they connected with. But these single people didn't know they could play a part. Well, by just playing video games with my team, they realize just the potential and the service they can render to our kids. So it's, it's not, there's nothing small when it comes to what we do for our kids. Anything will mean so much. That phone call, as I said, sometimes we don't get your phone call because we are in the trenches. But don't give up when we don't answer the 10th time. Don't give up when we don't answer the 100th time. Keep trying. And that will truly help us be the best we can because you came alongside to truly be the best you can. I love the idea of saying, I'm at the store. What do you need? Not, you know, can I get you something? Because I had so many people when, you know, I've been in a difficult cycle. We do therapeutic foster care. And so the extremity of the needs of these children from various traumas that they faced are 
you know, very high. And when I've been in these difficult cycles working with these children, I've had people say like, can, what can I do for you? And when you're in that place of like being, you're in the trenches, like you can't see outside the trenches. You're you're like, I I don't know. You know, I, I'm fine. I don't need anything. Just, just I'm here in my box. Exactly. Yeah. But if someone were to like, say to me, I'm at the store, can I pick up a few things for you? Like, what things do you need me to pick up? I'll get milk and eggs. What else do you need? Then I would definitely say like, oh, bread and lunch meat. Thanks so much. You know, and I think it's it's also the same thing when we're looking at, you know, how we can help people in general, not just obviously foster care, but I think the more that we can kind of phrase things in terms of making it as simple for someone as possible, because I don't want to feel like a burden. I don't want to have to, you know, think too hard to answer you. I don't want to have to feel like I'm asking for a favor when I'm already kind of like overwhelmed with what I have in my life. And I I do want to connect with my community and I do want to let people in in a way that, you know, works. And so I, I love that idea of, you know, being that a support for someone. And if you don't know anyone in your life that's a foster parent, there are organizations that can connect you. I know in my area in D.C., there's a an organization that's local. And then there's also, we have like my own agency, UMFS. There's also like Foster the Family, which I think is in New Jersey and DC. They provide practical necessities. So you can, you know, volunteer with them. You can donate with them. They do meals and they partner in different kinds of ways for the child and family service agencies with the government. And then, you know, there's also like Amazon Smile wish lists that people create that you can fill out that will, you know, fill backpacks and different kinds of things for children so that they don't have, you know, trash bags as they, you know, go from house to house. I, it was interesting. I was talking with kiddo a few weeks ago when we were school shopping and they said, you know, no one ever told me I wasn't going to come home again. Right. They were taken from from their home and they were thinking oh, it's temporary. They were thinking like, oh, I just need to like give my mom a day or two. And there were a lot of things that they could have or wished that they had grabbed that were sentimental in nature or different kinds of things. And they never went home again. And they, they unfortunately have not connected with mom and mom ended up losing her apartment and those items are are gone and lost forever. So I think, you know, if we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of these families, you know, if they have a suitcase, you know, when when the DSS or, you know, or agency comes, then they're more likely to fill that with things that matter to have, you know, a stuffed animal as such a comfort, you know, the sentimental things of photos and and different things that are so important. There's also, I don't know if you've heard of this, Peter, but the Together We Rise nonprofit organization, Mm -hmm. they're currently raising funds for Disney Days, which they haven't done in a while because of COVID, but it's a reunification program to have siblings who are in different programs come to Disney together and they they sponsor and pay for the the magical day isn't that amazing that is so awesome yeah I love that so I think there's you know a lot of opportunities to 
support if if you are not if being a foster parent isn't right for you there's a lot of ways that you can you know give with either time or money. I've heard from quite a few listeners who have become CASAs and that feels super fulfilling for them. And it's something that, you know, is easier for them within their time constraints. And being a CASA just means that you're the voice for the child in court cases. You you show up and you represent their wishes in court. And that's really important, especially, you know, like the example that I gave of the two brothers that we had for respite, you know, a CASA could have potentially advocated to the court, please don't terminate parental rights that the dad is really pushing and the children want to be back with him and potentially could have extended that that stay so that his rights hadn't been terminated. I, I don't know the details of that. I'm not speaking to that specifically. I'm just giving an example of something that a CASA could do. And that's something that anyone can do. And I think requires just a couple of months, a couple of hours a month. So, and I think the last thing that I want to kind of remind people of is just continuing to talk openly and honestly about what foster care is or isn't. I think you've heard from Peter some powerful stories today, both in the ways in which, you know, we can empower and support and connect with and co-parent biological families, as well as, you know, be a parent and a support system for children who don't go back home. And Peter, you've adopted, I'm in the process of adopting, and we've both have have had children that have gone back to their biological homes as well. So I think there's a lot of different circumstances and really it's about unconditional love. And Peter, as, as you say in the opening of your book, these, these vulnerable children and vulnerable parents are seen, they're heard, and they're loved. So I strongly encourage you to check out Peter's book, Now I Am Known, and it comes out August 30th. So you can either pre-order it. I know Amazon does like that low price guarantee thing, or if it's after that date when you're listening, you can pick it up anywhere. Is that right, Peter? Yes. Okay, great. And yes, it, you can pick it up any store all over the world. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. And you can connect with Peter on Instagram and Facebook at Foster Dad Flipper on YouTube and Twitter as well as Now I Am Known. And Flipper for Twitter is missing the E, but I'm sure you can find Peter Mutabazi on Google or however you want to look for him. And we'll be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, the best place to ask questions as well. If you love the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support the show, but so is leaving a review or hitting that follow or subscribe button in the podcast app that you're using so that others can find us as well. And if you'd like to keep in touch with Peter, like I said, we'll put all the links in the show notes to where you can find him and all the resources that we've mentioned. I referenced some statistics and studies and prior shows, and we'll put all the organizations and everything that we mentioned in the resource show notes section for you. Thank you for tuning in today. We really appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal change. I know I cried and had big feelings today, which usually is an indication of, you know, my own personal growth and progress. So Peter, thank you for that. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.